morning. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is Sunday, May 29th. We are reaching the end of the best month of the year. and We're starting June, which is my wife's birthday and is officially the best month of the year, I am told. Our scripture today comes from Isaiah, chapter 6, 1 through 8. Isaiah's commission. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Sorry, yeah, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their feet, with two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the, with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Blessed is the word of the Lord. Amen. I think most people would be a little jealous of Isaiah. You know, Isaiah, Samuel, Jeremiah, these great prophets of old that get not just a call, but they get a physical call. Someone's calling on the telephone saying, hey, it's me, God, guess what? You're chosen. Why don't the rest of us get that? But as, as I studied today's scriptures, getting ready for today and building my sermon, I call this, I call this a built sermon, which meant that I, I literally stood here, started at the beginning, and I kept talking it through until I finally got to an end. So... I didn't write any of this down, but I've memorized it. Fun. But as I built this sermon and I kept going back to the scripture and rereading it, I kind of realized maybe we're all a lot closer to Isaiah than we think. So I wanted to tell my story of how I heard God's call. And I know some of you have heard this. I checked through all of my records. I don't think I've ever told this story in a sermon. I apologize if I did, though I know I've told some people this story. It goes like this. I always kind of knew I'd probably end up in ministry, and that makes sense. I am the son of, of someone in the ministry. I am the grandson of two people in the ministry. I've got at least three generations in the ministry with years and years of brethren and Mennonite blood that stretches all the way back to you know, the first person who was dunked under the water once because they wanted to be 
an Anabaptist and then was later dunked under because they wanted to give them a killer baptism after that. You know, we've just always been. I figured I'd probably end up in ministry some way, one way or another. And I started to hear the call when junior high or youth Sunday, I, I got up and I preached. And afterwards, I was stopped by Randy Yoder, the executive, district executive of the central, middle Pennsylvania Church of the Brethren District. Randy was a member at our church. His wife was actually my English teacher. Um, and he stopped me afterwards and he said, Andrew, you did really well. Have you ever thought about the ministry as a, as a career? And I hadn't exactly, but I had, and, and that was my first inkling. Now, to be fair, as an adult who now knows several district ministers over my life, I believe that's how every district minister says hello to people now. Hi, have you ever thought about being a pastor? Eh. I went to college. I thought I'll be an education major. I love history. I'll be a history teacher. And I got there and they said, well, here's the thing. Education is a really, really full degree. So we recommend if there's any courses you want to take to, to kind of feel it out first, you know, to, to do other things, do it your first semester because every semester after that is going to be planned. You're not going to be able to do abroad or anything else. Education is too full. Okay. So I, I took a bunch of religion classes because I thought I'll do religious studies as well. And, and I took Christian ethics with Dr. Michael Long. And I loved the course. I loved the course not because we were told, here are the ethics you should live by, but instead it was, here are the, tool, the tools by which you can examine scripture, examine theology, examine writings in yourself, and figure out whether it is ethical or not. I loved that change of, of going from, you know, here is the right way to let's examine and find the right way. And I fell in love with religion, and I took every course. So by the time I graduated from seminary, I had completed not only my, my religious studies, and we had to, to do a track within that. I completed the biblical studies track, the ministerial track, um, the, the uh, Abrahamic religions track, which meant you know uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And if I had taken Sanskrit, I would have also completed the Eastern religions track. I really liked it. They made the joke when I left. It's like, well, who's going to be in all of our classes now? But what's the next step? Well, seminary. I was 22. 22 and ready to go to seminary, but I wasn't. And the Lauren and I were engaged, thought, okay, maybe. But Lauren didn't want to move to Indiana. I wasn't sure I wanted to move to Indiana. That's where Bethany, the Church of the Brethren Seminary, is. We weren't ready for that. And besides, I had just been in school for 17 years. 13 years from K to 12, four more years in college. I was schooled out. I did not want to go and write one more paper or one more syllabus to follow. None of that. I'm done. I'm done. Honestly, those were the excuses I made. The real one was my fear. I was afraid. 
After all, I was, as I said, 22. I had grown up in a church of the brethren full of college professionals. I grew up in a church where I had all these adults who were so influential in my life, who, who changed me, who molded me, who guided me. And I thought, how could I possibly go into a pulpit and preach to them? What could I tell my mom or my dad or my grandparents? What could I tell all those people at my church? I was scared. I might take a year off. Just a year, just one year. Lauren's rolling her eyes because they turned into eight. <laughs> I got a job in Hershey. It was close to E-Town. It made sense. I got a job working as a cook. Actually, I was supposed to be a manager. And after my six weeks of cook training, they said, are you ready to move on and continue the management track? And I said, no, you're all so miserable. I don't want to be a manager. To be fair, I was still miserable. Because though I was denying going to seminary, denying going into professional ministry, set-apart ministry, I still had the bug, the bug to do something. And Lauren noticed that and said, look at this job at Hummelstown United Church of Christ. They're looking for a youth leader. You should apply. So I did. And I got the job. And it was great. I, I loved working with the youth. Having a job meant that I had to be at that church every single Sunday. And so I made the connections. And I made, made, made the extra effort. I wasn't always great at making the effort of going but that, that made sure I was going. And, and though it was UCC, the UCC is a couple different churches together. That's the United part. Um, this one was out of the German Reformed movement, which meant while they weren't Anabaptists like us, they came from the same culture. You know, I was Pennsylvania Dutch, and they were, Pencil and they were Dutch living in Pennsylvania. So it worked out well. That worked for about three years. Funny how that one year gets away from you. And then several things all happened in 2013. First off, we had gone through several general managers. Um, we also went through many, many regular managers. And I was unhappy with that. And I finally said, fine, I'll be a manager if that means I don't have people coming in over top of me again and again and again and again. Because every time you get a new manager in here, they think they're going to make it completely different, and it takes us months to fix everything the way they like it, only for them to leave. And then we'd start again. Let me be the kitchen manager. Also, Lauren and I had saved up the money, and we were getting married. So we got married October 13th, 2013, right? 13, 13. 13's not a bad luck number, I swear. I mean, we've made it this far, right? So 13-13, we got married. Um, and, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, we got married. Uh, we went for a week's uh, honeymoon in the Catskills, came back, I worked one week in the restaurant, and then I went, began my management training which involved me traveling down to Gettysburg four to five days a week, which is an hour away. <laughs> so I went from my normal 20-minute walk to an hour's drive 
every day or two hours. So I was putting in anywhere from eight to 10 extra hours a week just in travel. And they kept me down there for two months. I wasn't seeing a lot of Lauren. That wasn't fun. I also wasn't doing a very good job being a youth pastor anymore. I mean, I, I was there and we were doing some things, but I was exhausted all the time. I wasn't keeping on top of it. And then I came, I, I kept telling myself, it'll get better. It'll always get better. I'm just going to finish this training and I'll be back. And then I won't have these, you know, eight hours, 10 hours of travel every week that I can put into other things. Well, I got back, supposed to be a part-time manager, which technically means I work only 40 hours a week. And then our assistant general quit. And now I'm working 50 to 60 hours a week. At the same time, the church was changing. Pastor Claude, who was and still is a, a close friend, uh, was going into semi-retirement. He was going down to one quarter time and they had hired on someone to do three quarters time. And I know part of it was me being stressed and tired and overworked, but it was also just a personality issue. You know, there's some people you just don't mesh with. It's no one's fault. You just don't fit well together. We just didn't fit well. We were always talking past each other. Well, finally, I went in one day, and she and I sat down and we talked. And all of a sudden, all the stress I was feeling just started pouring out of me. I couldn't be a good minister to these kids, and I couldn't be a good husband, and I couldn't be a good manager all at the same time, and still sleep. I'm one of those people who has to have enough sleep or I get really grouchy. Just ask my wife. I started to cry, and I told her, I don't think I have another choice. I'm going to have to resign. I guess that was technically five years. I was at the Friendlies for five years before I became a manager. So I'd been with these kids about four years, and it was heartbreaking. But it was what had to be done. I thought maybe I had missed the call. That I had set myself into this new job, and maybe this would be my life. I would always be working in restaurants. Hopefully not this restaurant at this level. But maybe that was just my, my field now. I was done with ministry. But God doesn't finish with you even when you think you're done with God. Because things, things started to take a weird turn over the next couple years. I was, uh, one of the things when you move from being a manager to, I mean, being from a back of the house person to the uh, manager, is that means you're getting out from behind the kitchen. I was no longer hiding behind the hot plates. I had to go talk to people. And a specific thing called a table touch. If you have ever eaten at, a, especially a chain sit-down restaurant, you know, Red Robins, uh, Olive Gardens, anything like that, you have experienced a table touch, I'm sure. It's when somebody who isn't your server, usually wearing a button-up or a nice polo, comes up and says, hi, all, how you doing today? I hope your food's tasting great. Is there any problems? Glad you came in. We'll talk to you later. Bye. That's a table touch. The whole idea is that every manager touches every single table to make sure everything is fine and fixes any problems when they're happening. 
I never was crazy about table touches because that meant I had to come out into the front room and handle problems <laughs> because there were always problems. And I was a back of the house person. I preferred to make sure that my back of the house was running smooth. But I grew to like them. And I was, for the first year or so, I was on every Wednesday night. It was kids' night. My general manager hated working kids' night. Even though it was part of her job description, she had to work kids' night. So I got to know all the kids. I enjoyed that. But then I, I started doing more breakfast shifts again, and I got to know our regulars in the morning, which is kind of weird because I knew all their orders, but I didn't know them personally. And you, you get to talk to people. You get to talk to those who are just living their lives, you get to talk to people again and again, checking in with them regularly. You also, we are right across from a hospital, one of the best hospitals in Pennsylvania, Hershey Medical Center. It's run by Penn State. Got to know them. Got to know those who came in for cancer treatments regularly. Got to know people who had just come to, to take a loved one to surgery or to say goodbye. Got to know a few of the afternoon regulars. These were those people who, who always came in right at the end of lunch when we were getting quiet again. And there were two couples that made me realize that God was still using me. Their names were Bill and Mary and Ron and Carol. I honestly couldn't remember all those names until this morning, and I was walking through it, and all of a sudden, every name came back to me. And both couples... They came because it was their routine. And they came because it was their routine and their loved ones suffered from Alzheimer's. And for them, it was one of the few things they remembered to do still. You know, I remember with, with Ron, Ron was suffering from Alzheimer's. And even as he was losing memory and, and unable to, to remember his grandkids' names, for instance, Every day, almost, he would go put on his shoes, jump in the car, and drive down to Friendly's for a burger, fries, and a Coke, and then a small ice cream afterwards. Every day. Until we started to really become worried about him driving. We told Carol, and she's like, yeah, I'm going to start coming with him. She also would bring us back our soup spoons, because he would get chicken noodle soup often, and he'd take the soup spoon home. He'd just slip into his pocket without even knowing. She had quite a collection. We watched Ron as he started to get worse. We, we actually, she would come in and change things. So, you know, he still thought he was getting tur uh, regular burgers every day. We started giving him turkey burgers on the doctor's orders until one day Ron wasn't with us anymore. Carol still would come in to sit and talk, even if she only ordered a Sprite. The same was true for Bill and Mary, though opposite. Mary was the one who suffered from Alzheimer's. She was this tiny, tiny little woman, maybe five foot one, five foot two, a hundred pounds if you put a lead vest and soak her. Ron, on the other, I mean, Bill, on the other hand, was like six foot four, 350 pounds, and could not be put in a booth. But they came in almost every single day like clockwork. 
He always ordered a specific burger, and uh, I, I was the one who had to make his milkshake because it had to pass the tip test, which is when you take the milkshake, you flip it upside down, and it stays in there holding the spoon. If it didn't do that, Bill would, want, would send it back. Again, we watched Mary go from poor to worse to worse until finally we didn't see her anymore. Every day, Bill would drive the 45 minutes down to visit her, stay with her as long as he could till about two or so in the afternoon. He would drive down, he would eat at Friendly's, and then he'd go off and handle his business for the day so that he was back in his house before it got dark because he couldn't drive after dark. And every day I was doing my table touches. I'd stop at Bill's table. I sit down and we talk for 10, 15 minutes. And I saw a little less of Bill. Saw a little less of Bill. And then I remember coming in, it's probably about two o'clock, it's when my shifts usually start at two o'clock. Come in, go onto the back handle of my paperwork that I have to do at the beginning, do the handoff with the other manager, write up all my boards, everything, finish that up, go out, and there's Bill sitting there. I'm going to go over and talk to Bill. Bill looks up at me, and I instantly knew. Mary had gone. Bill stood up, and he reached out and gave me a big bear hug, and I gave him a hug back. Then I sat down at the table, and we talked for about 45 minutes. And he asked if I could pray with him. I said, of course. Now, technically, I shouldn't have, but hey, who cares? We sat, and we prayed together. And as I was heading home that night, and I, I usually walked, as I walked to the 20 minutes home that night, I had a discussion with God. I get it. I get it, God. I can run away from ministry if I want, but you will not allow ministry to run away from me. You, you have put me in a place with these people who need to talk to someone who need to hear the voice of another, who need someone to pray with, that need to know that they have a safe place that they can go every day, whenever they need it, and they will be heard and loved and felt. Cannot run away from ministry. Later that week, and I know it wasn't the next day, because I, I closed most nights, and that usually meant I was out at between 12 and 2. So I'm sure I just went home and slept. But over the next couple of days, I did my research and I began the application to Elizabeth, uh, to, to Lancaster Theological. I finally heard that call, loud and clear enough, and I could not ignore it. Now I didn't realize that really it wasn't very different for Isaiah. If you'll notice something, this is Isaiah's commissioning. That's what we call this, the call of Isaiah or the commissioning of Isaiah when he is told, you will be my prophets. What chapter does that happen in? First? That would make sense. No, it's the sixth. It takes six chapters until Isaiah is finally made a prophet. Why? There could be a couple reasons. First off, 
Maybe it's just not in order. That happens a lot. Isaiah is very segmented. He will seem to kind of write a section, and then they ordered them together in a way that made sense when they collected all the writings together. That makes sense. But still, no, why? There's another possibility. Maybe Isaiah's call really wasn't until the sixth chapter. Why? He spends five other chapters pointing out everything that was wrong, everything that needed to be fixed in, in Judah, in Israel. Even though he wasn't called into the ministry at that point, he wasn't called into what we would call the set-apart ministry, because we, we in the Church of the Brethren believe that every member is a minister, but then we have those who are set apart, those who we call pastors or chaplains or, or missionaries or whatever. He was already serving as a minister to God's people at this point. He has spent five chapters trying to help his people get back on track with God. And it was dangerous to do so. I mean, what happens to anyone who gets up and stands out and says, you know what, country, you're doing things wrong. Do you think they are well-loved? Probably not. Okay, we all know they aren't. They aren't well-liked, even back then. And this was in a time when it's a monarchal monar uh, yeah, 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 a system with a king. I'm just going to trip over that word a couple times for you all. He was not well-liked, probably. He seems to have had some extra things going for him. I mean, he's available to see the king whenever he wants and whatnot. We don't know a lot about Isaiah, but maybe he, he was related into the, the priest, high priest family, or he was related, he was a noble, somehow related to the king. But he's already doing the work. He's already doing the work when God reaches out and says, hey, hey, I'm making you my prophet. I know many of you have already been doing ministry, though you may not call it that. Perhaps it's something in your job. I know, I, know I, I come from restaurant work. I know many people I think were called to be in the restaurant business. I, 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 I remember this one server at Fens who brought such joy to everyone he interacted with. You know, people just wanted to come in and sit with Dustin's section because he made people happy no matter the day. You know, I, I know, I remember Chef David. The man was called to feed people. There have been many people out there who were called to be teachers, were called to serve the community, to serve their nation in many different ways. Sometimes our call is not our work, and that's okay, too. You may not be called to do this or that in a way that makes money, but you find ways to serve. You find ways to minister, even if it's talking to your workmates, even if it's finding days that you volunteer or you go next door and you help mow the person's lawn. The thing is, we're all doing little bits of ministry all the time. We may not realize it, we may not think about it, we may not recognize it as ministry. We may not be Isaiah who's standing out on street corners screaming at people about how they're doing things wrong. 
which is probably good because that really doesn't go over well today. But God finds a way. God finds a way to use you and me. And I think God does the next thing too. God finds ways to reach out to us and make us realize how we are helping, how we are ministering, how we are serving the kingdom of God. So yes, we may not get Isaiah's vision where all of a sudden we are standing in the temple seeing the, the only the bit of God that he can see is, is the hem, the hem of God's robe. That's all he can see. God's so gigantic. And being, you know, seraphims flying everywhere around, you know, these winged creatures. If you're in our Bible study, you might even have a slightly different image. We talked about this the one day that the word seraphim appears other places is always connected with snakes. So flying six-winged snakes with arms and legs, it's weird. All flying around, you know, singing praises. You may not get that, and I hope you don't have any hot coals touched to your lips. I burn my mouth on regular level coffee. But I think if you listen closely, you'll hear God's voice pushing you to do just a little bit more to make that transformation from recognize from from doing ministry to recognizing your ministry and taking it the next step beyond to something a little better a little greater we have been doing dangerous prayers and every one of them has been dangerous I can't say this one's more dangerous than the others. I look back, all of them have been, but it's still dangerous to say, God, here I am, send me. To volunteer, to step up and say, I am willing to do whatever you need me to do. Send me, God. Send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, for how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie ruined, no inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away. And the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be laid wa again laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they cut, are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. That's the rest of the story. It's not a happy one. It's full of sarcasm and anger. Maybe remembering that when we do accept the call, it won't always be easy or simple. It might be scary. But there's that last line. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they will cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. 
Those two plants in particular he's talking about are ones that when they are cut down, don't necessarily die. They still can live. They put up sprouts. You ever seen that? An old stump that's putting out new branches. There's always hope. Though however dark the world may seem or the work that you are called to do is, if you follow the call, if you volunteer the work, there's hope at the end. A little green stem poking out of something that you thought was ruined. Be careful when you say this prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom done, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.